Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome once again to A Biblical Frame, where we are looking at current events uh, from a biblical and theological perspective. My name is Ed Gerber, and this is part two of a talk with Charles Hoff, and we're delighted to have him. And in our first segment, we really looked at uh, what has gone on over the last couple of years and where we've come to, some things that we have learned from COVID and from our response to COVID. This episode, we're hoping to more focus on what does this mean for the church? What kind of response is required by the church? And Jens will give those of you who didn't listen to the first episode a bit of a summary. But we'll begin by introducing ourselves. My name is Ivan De Silva. I um, teach part-time at Trinity Western University and Pacific Life Bible College. I'm a former Detective at the Vancouver Police, retired after 27 years. Thank you. And I'm Jan Zimmerman, a Professor of Theology at Regent College. Douglas Farrell, Professor of Theology and Ethics at McGill University. I'm Charles Hoff. I'm a family physician living in Lytton, Southern British Columbia. Um, I did my medical training in South Africa, came to Canada in 1990. Um, I've been a, a Christian since 1977 and um, have lived in the community that, that I'm presently in for 29 years. Yeah, I wanted to uh, set us up here a little bit. In, the, in our last podcast, we reflected on the COVID narrative. After more than two years now, the mainline story about the pandemic is becoming rather threadbare. I mean, one doesn't have to... Uh, be an expert in the relevant medical or scientific fields to recognize that the mainline COVID narrative greatly overestimated the danger of COVID to society. As Charles Hoff has indicated in our last podcast, statistics that reveal COVID to be no more deadly than a serious flu, and now with Omicron and other variants, even less so, are readily available to anyone with access to the internet. Many experts like Dr. Pellick, whom we interviewed on a previous podcast, share the view of Dr. Hoff that the deadliness of COVID has been grossly overstated. It has now become clear that the initial panic was based to a great extent on wrong fatality, fatality predictions based on misleading computational models. <clears throat> uh, and on top of that, some of the most prominent experts in epidemiology, immunology and virology declared early on in the pandemic that the universal lockdown and masking measures favored by most governments are ineffective against viral outbreaks and that one should instead protect the highest risk group, that is the elderly, immunocompromised and so on, while allowing the rest of society to continue life basically normally. Scientists who urged this approach to COVID were highly credentialed experts from Oxford, Stanford and Harvard universities and, and other such respectable institutions. Yet, curiously, these scientists, some of whom helped establish even the official medical standards for healthcare in their countries, were often presented in the media as spreading misinformation, deliberately silenced or ridiculed. It is only now, after more than two years, that their stance is turning out to have been correct a stance which was based on the standard viral outbreak protocol endorsed even by the World Health Organization prior to this COVID pandemic. Now, perhaps the greatest sea change 
in the COVID narrative pertains to the vaccines. Again, one does not have to be a vaccinologist or medical expert to know that the new mRNA-based COVID vaccines did not deliver what was initially promised, namely to stop the spread of the virus. We don't have to go into scientific details here to note the obvious point. These vaccines were touted by all healthcare bureaucrats and the media as safe and efficient. Safe meaning that they have zero side effects and efficient meaning that they stop transmission. I'm sure many of us can recall the constant appeal to get the shot because they will stop transmission on television and other channels. Yet it has now become public knowledge, admitted all around by healthcare uh, bureaucrats and so on, that the vaccines were never designed to stop transmission. Precisely their ability to do so, however, became the basis for the moral argument of protecting others by taking the shot. It is here that Christians in particular identified with the vaccination mandates. Vaccination is an act of neighborly love. What Christian would not want to protect others from becoming ill? Protecting others from transmission by taking the shot was also the basis for the vaccine mandates in public institutions. Yet, as it turns out, with the transmission argument gone, these mandates made no sense at all. Yet churches eagerly embraced these mandates. Most churches never stopped to consider that the segregation of Christ's body into vaccinated and unvaccinated violates the church's unity that Christ accomplished on the cross. Many churches introduced vaccine passports in effect segregating their congregation into the vaxxed and unvaxxed, tearing apart the garment of Christ and setting fear or supposed health concerns over the unity of the body of Christ. So, I mean, now that this is all unraveling, and these reasons, if they ever obtained, are clearly, obviously to anyone, and not, not, uh, not relevant anymore, how does the church look at this now? So our basic question in this segment of the podcast is, how should the church react to and move forward in light of this apparently crumbling standard COVID narrative? What should church leaders do? Perhaps we can turn to uh, Doug Farrow here for starting us off with a response. Doug, what what do you think? Well, I think that um, there is no <clears throat> there is no way forward for the church any more than there is a way forward for society at large. That does not involve some metanoia, some repentance. Um, Now, given that many people have, um, for whatever reason, chosen not to examine carefully the problems that we've been facing and simply to direct their themselves and their, 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 um, churches by conformity to the public discourse. Repentance requires some re-education. It it requires a willingness to look hard at these things, even though there's a serious danger (laughs) that we 
we'll find that we have been uh, lax and morally culpable in failing to respond properly to this crisis. So if um, we can, by the grace of God, muster the sort of humility that uh, we were speaking out at the e- about at the end of the previous uh, episode, uh, to to um, do what's necessary for repentance, we we, we will need to um, we will need to do what we did not do, and that is look hard at the kind of facts we were considering in the in the previous episode. Of course, we need to do more than that. We need to ask ourselves what the church is and what it's for. If we ask ourselves um, a question like that, and we ask about the dominical instructions for living uh, the Christian life, we, of course, think of texts such as seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Uh, well, what are these other things? What do the, what do the nations the, who, who don't uh, pursue the kingdom of God, what, what do they seek after? Well, very evidently, they, they've been seeking after some kind of security. Some, some, you know, they, they've put their, their, uh, hopes for security in the wrong places, but they've, they've, they've been seeking after some kind of security. Christians are told not to seek after security in the ordinary sense, but to seek after the kingdom, which is, of course, ultimately secure. Yes, because it's the kingdom of God and it is, um, it is not conquerable. Um, but with if we ask ourselves, what are the signs uh, of our seeking? This was this was the, as I've said before on this podcast. This was the first signal to me that something was seriously wrong in the church as well as in society. That there was this palpable fear, and fear is not of God. We all wrestle with it. I, I you know, we all wrestle with it. But it is not of God. And um, w- we found, I think, in the churches that the same irrational panic that was present in society was also present in the church. And if we are asking the kinds of questions that would allow us a genuine repentance and through a genuine repentance, a proper way forward, a recovery, uh, we, we, I think we need to ask ourselves, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of death? Well, what do the scriptures say? That the Christ came to deliver us from the fear of death. If we ask ourselves, well, maybe... You know, I'm not actually all that frightened of death at the moment, but I am frightened of what others will say about me, picking up on things that were said a moment ago. Uh, What is that? That's the fear of man. But we are told to fear God rather than man. Very good. If we ask ourselves, what is the church? 
Well, the church and each individual church is the ecclesia. It's the civic assembly of the people of God. It's an, it's an embassy of the kingdom of God in the world. I don't think the embassies of the nations were closed for the most part during this COVID crisis. But the embassies of the kingdom of God were closed. And the ambassadors didn't put up much of a fuss, whether they were clerical or lay leaders. They didn't put up much of a fuss about the closure of these embassies of the kingdom of God in the city of man. So all the window dressing about the second commandment, loving the neighbor as oneself, in the absence of a clear willingness to fulfill the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to and to draw near, I, I alluded a moment ago to Hebrews. I mean, the whole the whole message of Hebrews is about drawing near to God in order to discover the uh, parasia, the boldness, to also stand before man and not to shrink back from fear of man, from pursuing the kingdom of God. If we shut down the worship of the churches of God and shut down the public act of fulfilling the first great commandment, what on earth makes us think that we will have the requisite boldness to challenge the city of man with the gospel of freedom from the fear of death in the midst of this tremendously manipulated and irrational fear of death. So, uh, you know, I think we have to get back to basics. We have to get back to a basic understanding of what the church is and what it's for. If we are going to rediscover the courage to ask the kinds of questions that need to be asked and to chart a course worthy of our outposts of the kingdom, so to say, under threat of um, not a virus so much as the way the virus is being used in order to change the political landscape, to change the religious landscape, to change the economic landscape, to change the relation between church and state, between citizens and the state, and even between doctors and their and their licensing bodies. Um, so maybe that's enough to get us going with. Um, and I'll pause there and and uh, we'll take it further as you as you wish. Doug, maybe I can just um, ask ask you to respond to this uh, follow up question. So it seem to be two things that you said, two two different things, maybe or two things that are closely related. One is we have to understand what the church is. Another is that you're implying that there are large scale changes afoot um, economically, socially, 
for which the virus is being used. Like to basically, there is some kind of an agenda that the virus is being used to advance, right? Um, yes. Yeah. So maybe you can just say more about the second aspect. On the first one, do you think like what needs to happen for us to recover this kind of uh, libertas ecclesiae, like the the sense that the church really takes its orders first of all not from the government but from God. Um, now here in the Lower Mainland, um, it's interesting. Like we've got lots of Mennonites who you'd think would be more suspicious of the government. Um, but I think they've completely sort of conformed to the general trend, which is, you know, that's the government rules, follow the rules, folks. Um, I've heard that so often from so many Christian leaders. There's no sense that the church itself operates out of a completely different realm um, and authority. So how, how do we regain that? So that's my one question. The other is, what do you see as this agenda that wants to use the virus uh, to advance itself? Well, I'll respond to the more important question first, and 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 that's that's the second. Uh, well, um, that's the question about the church as church. Yeah. Um, I, I I I do worry that we've seen a tremendous um, change in our perception of the church itself to see it primarily as um, a place where we are um, uh, encouraged in whatever fashion we wish to be encouraged. It's, 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 it's almost like a service industry. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's something that should make us feel comfortable. As if the church existed for our sake, rather than for the sake of the kingdom of God, and therefore also for our sake. So we need to we need to um, stop looking at the church as as something that that um, some people regard as an essential service, and some people do not, and rather see it as. Uh, uh, as a divinely ordained ministry of the gospel to the nations. And if we see it in that light, our first question is, how do we fear God? And only then, how do we obey the emperor? Mm -hmm. there, there's a very, there's a very um, important statement uh, under that title, fear God, obey the emperor. Uh, that's come out from evangelicals and Catholics together in in first things, uh, not in the latest edition, but the previous one. And I encourage everyone to read it and pay close attention to it. Um, it doesn't talk a lot about the COVID crisis. It comes to it towards the end, only briefly. Um, but it's a it's a powerful call uh, to get that order right. It seems that many have reversed it. Fearing God is obeying the emperor. <laughs> obeying the emperor is fearing God. Well, no, that's not right. God establishes juridical authority uh, for the sake of the good order of society. 
but but God does not condone whatever the authority happens to be doing. And you wouldn't know whether God did or didn't condone it unless you knew the mind of God. We're to fear God and obey the emperor insofar as it's possible within the fear of God. So that's that's one of those basic points that we need to get straight on again. The church does not exist just for my personal benefit. And the law does not exist as if it were God. The notion that the law uh, even is 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 to be equated with the will of God is an extremely naive and inadequate understanding of the role of law in our in 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 our world and in divine intentions as well as in human intentions. So. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of issues there that we could explore further, but um, but I think it, it it starts with getting that order correct. If we if we fear God, we learn how to love our neighbor, including by by keeping legitimate laws. But we also learn how to love our neighbor by refusing to keep the commands or fo- obey the commands that are illegitimate. So when a doctor, for example, is ordered to ignore the first principle, do no harm, that's not a legitimate command. And there's no authority in the world that has from God the, the, the right to issue an instruction contrary to that first principle. Yes. When the state says, you must not meet. Indefinitely, you must not meet. Or when you meet, only people who have been injected with this product or set of products can meet, can draw near to God. There's no authority on the planet that has from God the right to do that. So, again, first things, basics. Now, that's not to say that we get to decide um, which laws are legitimate and which ones are illegitimate. It does mean that the church has a responsibility to put the law of God above the law of man and to do its best to um, work with human civic positive law in a way that is compatible with the law of God. And if it fails at that task, it it fails to be any kind of embassy in the world at all. It just becomes uh, a convenience for people who find it convenient and who can put it aside or take it up as proves to be convenient. That's, That's not the church of Jesus Christ. And communities that think it is are doing something other and being something other than the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know if you want to press me on that. Uh, I've spoken about some of these things before in the podcast, and and uh, but I'm happy to elaborate a bit before we move to the other question. I was just going to. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot here <clears throat> that uh, to unpack, but one of the things I have observed is our leaders who have been entrusted as shepherds over the flock of Christ, really have very little understanding of the thing it is that they are shepherds over. 
um, namely the uh, the the understanding of what the church is and what they are leading. They are more uh, they are more attuned to techniques and um, and and so on and so forth as opposed to really having a biblical doctrine of the church. And uh, to add to your um, definitions of the church, you can think of so many uh, complementary uh, descriptions of the church, and I think of one particularly that Paul tells Timothy, and that is that the church is the pillar of the truth and supports the truth, and therefore truth and maintaining the truth is one of the most important uh, jobs of our leaders. And... Um, in this case, um, I don't think they dug very far for the truth on this whole thing. And, um, uh, and another scripture that comes to mind, there were several scriptures that were important to me as this thing unfolded that helped me navigate through this. And one of them was Acts 17, because we were told you should just trust the, the government, you should trust the experts, you should trust the authorities. But in Acts 17, Paul commends a group of Christians called the Bereans because they did not just accept what he said, but actually searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was in accordance with the, um, the scriptures. Now, that is an analogy <clears throat> um, to what I think we should have done if Paul commends these Christians for fact-checking his words. And we are talking about an apostle of Jesus Christ here who has seen the risen Christ and been commissioned by him and commended them. How much more, I would say, should we as Christians and Christian leaders fact-check or examine what our governments and what our scientists and what our medical establishment is saying and not to just accept as gospel what they were saying. So I think um, <clears throat> in some of these we were let down by our leaders, and um, I would hope that they will realize this and, as we say, come to some sort of repentance. Yeah, if I might just come back on that a little bit, because I was leading a church through this period of time, and one of my big takeaways at the time was that, and the thought that prevailed in my mind was that we are in the midst of an epistemological crisis, because what I had in my congregation and at the highest levels of our leadership um, were people who were receiving their information from different sources. Those who would listen to CNN and mainline news outlets were utterly convinced of their position, and it was the popular position, and it was drilled in with numbers and with fear and the like of that. Others were doing some research on the side and going, this does not add up. This doesn't make sense to what I'm seeing in other areas. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And my experience was that we were epistemologically, in terms of what we were knowing and how we were coming to know it, divided against ourselves and therefore couldn't stand. So if I would come and say, we cannot shut the doors of the church, we need to meet in person 
and we need to talk about the theology of the face and how masks fit into that, I'd be immediately contradicted by my leadership and have to submit. So it was very difficult for some of us because we weren't given sufficient authority um, and the church was divided. So it was a very difficult time. So this raises for me the theology of technology, actually, and how, you know, televisions are actually pretty new on the human scene and these types of media and um, the degree to which they allow congregants not only to be catechized, but to be propagandized. And I think we saw the degree to which the church is vulnerable um, to accepting things as true. We don't only see this, you know, with COVID, we see this with issues of human sexuality. We see this with notions of what it means to be human at the most fundamental level, where we get our identity from, or whether we need to self-create our identity. So there's some bigger theological issues um, underneath, I think. The willingness to be disincarnate as an ecclesia, as a as an assembly. I found very, very striking. Douglas, I'm glad you mentioned I've got this written down that you know part of the argument very early on was well not closing down. We're meeting on Zoom. We're having services online. And so there is a spirit of disembodiment um, that it's okay to be disembodied. It's okay to live in a simulated reality or to receive brothers and sisters. What's on the ascendancy now is virtual churches. So it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon that we're seeing, but Part of it was, we're not shutting, like, I remember doing Easter Sunday service from my living room with my iPhone. That's well, terrible. At least, the, at least the masters of the algorithms were able to track what you were saying. That's right. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean... Again, you asked about lessons to be learned from this. The ease with which so many made the transition from being an embodied community gathered together, as St. Paul says, on one place, gathered round one Lord, to being a community that simply listened in to clergy doing their thing, the way they would listen into a football game, and probably they switched to the football game at the first opportunity. It, it, it's a very it's a very disconcerting fact about all of this. The the. Um, the nature of Christian worship is, is, again, not well understood. And again, this has become evident. Hebrews, uh, at, at the climax in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, talks about the Christian church concretely in terms of don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And it compares the assembling to the original gathering of the church 
that is, of the covenant people at Mount Sinai. It's the same concept. It's the gathering of the people of God to God. And so Hebrews chapter 12 picks that up and says, look, you you haven't even come to a mountain with thunder and lightning. You've come to something far more spectacular. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You've come to angels and archangels and the hosts of heaven. You've come to the to the to the the to join together with the souls of those who have been perfected. You've come together around Christ, the mediator. And and this is the call. And and the, the point of the of the of the of this letter is to discourage people in those Jewish Christian communities from shrinking back from this assembly because out of fear for what people around them and particularly other Jews would say. But we, we seem to have lost all of that when we think that you're, that the church is still functioning as church when it does not gather. And remember that that this is not just looking back to Sinai. This is looking forward, Paul tells us in Thessalonians, to the parousia. It's looking forward to the ultimate assembly upon our Lord. Second Thessalonians 2. So when, when we decide it's not important to gather, we are really repudiating Sinai behind us and the parousia before us. And we are simply conforming to a society that believes in none of that. I couldn't agree more with that. And I think another point to be made there, too, is if we might say that the church, the ecclesia, is an eschatological community, that is to say that it is a beacon of the future in the present time. So when the people of God gather together in the worship of the one true king— we are broadcasting to the world the reality of the future and the present, right? Because from all nations, peoples, and tongues will be gathered around the throne room of God and be worshiping the one true king. So it's an eschatological event. Now, if it's an eschatological event, the connection I want to make is embodiment is requisite if we are going to appropriately proclaim the truth about the resurrection, we need to be embodied. We need to be together as persons. I think an argument can be made pneumatologically as well from the doctrine of the Spirit. When Jesus breathes into the disciples and says, receive the Spirit, it's kind of they're being made into his new humanity after Genesis chapter 2, when God breathes into the man, he becomes a living being. And so too, the church, um, the Spirit of God is the presence of God, and so if you want to meet with God, you've got to meet with God's people but it is mediated through the human and in the human body and not without it. I was having a conversation with a counselor a little bit, um, a friend of mine uh, ago, and saying, isn't it a marvel that simply by sitting in a room with somebody and listening to them and being present, that healing occurs? Why is that? It's because we communicate the presence of God through our persons and through our bodies. God is present within us. And so this too is, I think, um, really important when we think about the doctrine of the church and gathering together. 
Yeah, I'll speak to that in a moment, but I believe Charles wants to to speak up here. Yes. So I, I, you know, the, the, Solomon told us in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. And Satan, who is the enemy of our souls, has he well, he continually attempts to either corrupt or destroy everything that God either commands or creates. He's the liar, the deceiver. He's been a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And so I've pondered the thought, how is it that the world and indeed the church has been so easily captured in this this whole pandemic? Because it really was. It was captured. Vast numbers of people, both in the church and outside the church, have been deceived. And I believe they were captured by fear. They were they were captured firstly from misinformation by massive exaggeration of the risk of harm, and and in fact, part of this whole thing is literally a war against truth. Where almost everything that we have been told by those who we thought we could trust about COVID has turned out to be untrue. You know, they told us there was no treatment for it; you just need to get the shots. They told us that masks would would stop it and keep people safe. They told us that you need to stay at home and keep away from each other. They told us just on and on so many things. Almost everything they told us about it was, you know, they said that un, that asymptomatic people are, can can kill others by spreading. The, it, it's all been shown to be false. So there's literally a war against truth, but the the church was captured by fear. And the fear was on three levels. It was firstly fear of the virus. Secondly, it was fear of man, you know, which Solomon warned us about in the book of Proverbs. Fear of man is a snare. And and so and that's where all the virtue signaling comes from. That's where um you you conform just because you don't want to be seen as going against the tide. You're afraid of what other people will think of you, so you just fit in. And 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 it was also in in the medical establishment fear of the authorities that 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 people who could see that none of this made sense because there was no science behind all these things that we were told that they knew weren't they were afraid for their own well being, and so they they kept silent and and they didn't expose the misinformation. So. I think where the church failed was not from by by not living in faith because faith and fear cannot exist coexist in the same space. The righteous shall live by faith. And faith just as perfect love casts out fear faith casts out fear. And and the only one that we are commanded to fear is God. And and we're told 365 times in the scripture to not be afraid. I, I, th- I think I, I'm not aware of any other command that we are given more times in the scripture than to do not fear or or do not be afraid. And yet we were captured by the fear. And, and instead of standing on the word of God, which commands us not to forsake the gathering together, which commands us to examine all things to, and to hold fast to that which is true, Instead of doing that, we were captured by the fear and we conformed to this world, which was doing things contrary to the word of God. So I think that we need to realize that 
there is well firstly it's that we learn from the the power of fear and how easily we are captured by it because every tyrant in history has used fear to control its subjects fear and misinformation and fear intimidation and misinformation that's what they use and and we as christians who are commanded to only fear god need to learn from this so that with the next crisis that comes upon us we put out we 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 search the word of god we are not captured by the fear because fear makes people act in irrational ways a, a bit like peter denying christ right after he said he wouldn't deny christ denies him out of fear of what this person's going to think of him fear makes us do crazy things that we wouldn't normally do it makes us irrational and so i think that's the take home message for the for the church in this is that we we need to be living by faith we need to learn from this mistake and we need to test all things and hold fast to that which is true this actually gets us to uh, a little bit to the second question i asked uh, douglas because it you know this wasn't a this wasn't a um, controversial topic uh, before covid basically that governments are now looking to govern by fear to govern by crisis uh, that one crisis shall ch chase another uh, in order to um, allow a kind of safety and security regimen or um, form of governing to uh, to dominate and, and shape how we think about uh, governance and the future and so on and so forth. So um, I wonder, Doug, is that something that you were you were thinking about? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, books like Surveillance Capitalism, um, uh, other, other books I've read. Um, you know, I don't know if you've read it, Aaron Cariotti's book uh, that recently came out from the psychiatrist in... Uh, California, the the uh, the new abnormal, the rise of the the uh, medical bio or the biosecurity state. Um, I don't think that that was very controversial before COVID. Now people say it's a conspiracy theory, but there seems to be a strong drive um, by governments to to implement the next crisis and to govern by states of emergency and acceptance by you know and um, sort of martial law type of. Um, scenarios so that they um, circumvent the usual democratic processes. Well, before before we go there, um, let me say two things. Um, the first is that I never want to hear the word conspiracy theory again. <laughs> not on this podcast and not anywhere else. Um, I'm not giving orders. I'm only telling you my feelings. Um, I wouldn't but, take any uh, orders from you. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I mean, the whole Bible is a conspiracy theory. Yeah. If if there is such a thing as as a, a good God, and if there is there are agents, angelic or human, who try, as Charles was saying a moment ago, to thwart the will of God. How do you do that? Well, you develop a conspiracy to undermine the creator's creation and so to undermine the creator himself. 
Now, if we don't believe any of that happens, if there's no evil and there's no problem of evil, uh, you know, that we ever have to contend with, well, then I guess we would never have any use for a conspiracy theory. But if this really does happen, then, of course, we have to be on the lookout for it. And we will sometimes say this seems to be a conspiracy to accomplish that. Now, all of our colleagues, uh, believing or unbelieving, know this to be true. And they talk about it all the time in their own circles. They, uh, this, this business of, of you can't say that because that's conspiracy theory. That's nonsense. And, and let's, let's just not do that. Let's not talk about it in those terms. The question is the truth. Is the truth being spoken? Is the truth being lived? Now, that leads me to the second thing, which I was thinking about when we were talking earlier, and Ed, when you were talking about um, about our um, experiencing the church in an in an incarnate fashion, in the sense that that we mediate the love of God um, and the love of neighbor by being together. Mm-hmm. Well. Okay, so I'm the Catholic in the crew, right? And I want to say this. It's not about us mediating to one another until it's about the mediator mediating himself to us. Yeah. So I am even more critical of the Catholic churches than I am of the Protestant ones for this rush to a disincarnate, disembodied, non-Eucharistic fellowship, in which they didn't even need the body of Christ, never mind in the primary Mm -hmm. sense, Mm -hmm. never mind in the secondary sense. We as the body of Christ, filled with Christ, recipients of Christ, participants in his offering as our heavenly liturgist, Hebrews again. They didn't even need that. So, you know, this problem goes all the way down theologically, yep. ecclesiologically, and right through the churches and the various branches of Christianity. So I, I had to get in that, that in there unless I be mis, misunderstood. Mm-hmm. It's not, and we do mediate the love of God and the love of, of, of uh, Christ and the love of one another by being together in person, yes. But what are we gathering to in person? We're gathering to Christ, our Lord himself, whom in receiving we are able to share with others in the ways appropriate and the ways that that he asks us to. When we don't even meet, none of that takes place. So uh, with that clarification, and you're, you're welcome to come back at me on that, but I, I'm not I trying to turn this different. into My first point was an, that an, the, an ecumenical uh, uh, breakdown here. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't but, think we're saying anything different. My first point was that the church is an eschatological, eschatological community. And of course, that means that we are gathering around the Christ. And that was the first point. The second that comes out of it is that if we're going to proclaim the resurrection, in our gathering together, i.e. that aspect of eschatology, then we need to be together. And then I and then I went on to talk about the presence. So, yes, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. If I may... So, yes, please. No, no, go ahead. I'll come after you. No, no, I was just going to go on with what Jens had asked, uh, asked me to speak to. I, I'm 
quite patient in this regard. <laughs> I was going to pick up on uh, Charles's uh, words on uh, what what the opposite of fear is faith and faith in God, and it is God that we fear first and foremost. And um, if we fear God, then everything else comes into perspective. And um, faith in God, I think in this case, there were some things that we could have considered um, uh, in, in order to bolster that. And I think one of the things would have been, going back to the uh, Genesis creation account, that we believe in a God who knows how to handle chaos. And this creature, whatever this virus is, whether it's a living organism that is part of the creation or whatever it is, maybe Charles can enlighten us on that. What exactly is this? It is, is it an animal? Is it a, is it a vegetable or, or cell or whatever it is? But that story tells us that God can manage chaos. He can manage these creatures, and we do not have to be in fear of them. And um, and uh, this, the the ending of uh, the book of Job is all about how God can handle these chaos monsters that cause great damage and death and destruction to human beings, whether it's the behemoth or the the leviathan. And and Christ, of course, in his resurrection, has triumphed over death and these creatures. And um, so I think that that is a God that we have faith in, the, the God who, who knows his creation, who holds his creation in a balance of, of chaos and, um, and life and is holding the chaos at bay constantly. And if, if it breaks through once in a while, as it did, for example, in the flood, it is according to his purposes. It is, it is, not, it is not undirected. It is, it, it, is, it is not running amok. It is on a chain. It is, it is there to teach us something. It may be for judgment. It may be for chastisement or whatever. And, uh, and so we do not have to fear it in that way. And who are we? So this is our God. And then what about us? Are we not the living temples of, of, uh, of, of God when we meet together? And... Um, you know, when we think about Jesus Christ in his life, wherever he walked, uh, diseases were banished, uh, food was multiplied, uh, death was reversed. It seems demons were driven away. What was that all about? Well, probably because there was a living temple walking around around the earth, and it was the the evil and the wickedness that was fleeing from him. And so when we gather as the church, do we not have the confidence that, um, that it is those forces that have to fear us as opposed to us fearing them and hiding from them at home and in isolation? Anyway, I just throw this out there for... Amen. Random comments. I think we agreed earlier that the the fear factor is in you know in the churches was was divided between the fear of the virus and the fear of human authorities and also of communal opinion um 
churches that that meet in the fear of God do not succumb so easily to the other types of fear. So um, again, underlining a basic a basic point, we draw near to God with the boldness that we are granted by God through Christ and in the spirit. And that boldness, which grace gives us towards our God, will carry over into our lives in the communities in which we live. And they will carry over into confronting false exercises of authority, such as we have lived under and in many jurisdictions still are living under, with the abuse of emergency powers, the abuse of, of even of professional associations to try to whip people into line with what is not true and with what does not um, serve the best interests of the community or of particular people in it. So um, we come, I guess, then to your other question, Jens. Uh, what is motivating those who are orchestrating the campaign of fear? Well, um, <laughs> I have been pondering that from the outset, and I'm still pondering it, and I'm a little clearer than I was at the beginning, uh, but not as clear as I would like to be. Some of the main... Now, you're content to hear that we that we move away from our our first question and our, our concern with the churches in doing this, because that's in effect what we will be doing. If I uh, go ahead. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, um, so a lot of theories have been floated. And um, one of them is that the economy has been, has been, uh, corrupted and is collapsing and that some kind of of um smokescreen to cover the economic collapse and to reorganize economically on a different basis was called for and we've just been living through that smokescreen another theory is and I, by the way I'm not approving any of these theories that I'm saying that I'm conscious of um another is that um certain very wealthy and privileged people have decided that whatever shape the economy is in um they want the political and economic revolution that can be accomplished by a uh depatterning and repatterning of the collective psyche so they want the chaos they want the they want the distrust of authority even uh, they want they want people weakened to the point where they flee to a refuge of some kind and they have in mind to make fundamental changes to the way we live it's not you know they the people who take that approach will point to to the 
strange coincidence between the COVID crisis and the rollout of a welfare state with billions not only given to provinces, but to individuals. I, I, I was at a hospital um, not too long ago having a blood test, and the the chap who was, was drawing the blood was um, pointing out that they were hard worked because many of their many of their fellow laborers in that particular vineyard um you know weren't coming to work anymore and and i said well that that's i couldn't see why he thought he was hard work because in fact i was the only person in a room asking for the blood to be taken in a room that had four or five people who were there to collect blood i was the only literally the only person there but they, anyways, I said, well, it's too bad these people are staying home. They should come and do their jobs. And he said, well, you know, the government pays them to stay home. And they would rather take the money and stay home. And he didn't seem to think that was an especially bad idea. In fact, it sounded to me like he was contemplating it himself. But be that as it may, um, people will point to the very odd uh, largesse that we are experiencing. They will point to the bills, you know, going tr- that, that are being put forward for a universal basic income. They will point to the the establishment and rollout of the vaccine passports in connection with digital identification and the well, yes, the biomedical surveillance state. Um, there are other theories. Um, some say that the, the the Chinese Communist Party has reached the the level of influence in the West that it's capable of introducing this kind of chaos. Um, and still others say that it's really uh, a matter of some determination of the so-called deep state, particularly in America, to change the conditions on the ground. Why? Well, you get into a whole other range of theories about why. Um, there's something to each of these. I mean, they, they are working with known facts. I mentioned in the previous podcast the fact that that Moderna, which was a company of three people and failing financially, had a $55 million investment from, from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, um, and then uh, in the end, between DARPA, which is DOD, and uh, BARDA, which is, as I said, HHS, they, 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 there was a billion and a half American government dollars invested into Moderna to get it working with the very mRNA technology that Charles mentioned had failed and to try to make a go of it. Well, it all begins to look rather convenient. <laughs> we know about the war gaming without live ammunition. Is this some kind of war game with live ammunition? I don't know. What what is the purpose of the American uh, uh, the Americans at the at the military and and administrative and deep state levels, the bureaucracy? What what would be their purpose in all of this? Hard questions are being asked even by American senators. Well, I'm not going to try to answer all of that because I don't frankly know. 
But anyone who thinks that we can go through a crisis like this, that is obviously orchestrated on so many levels, from professional associations to universities to media to governments around the West, and suppose that nobody is organizing anything, and it's all just because we're really stupid people, right? And we're or, and we're governed by really incompetent people. That's wishful thinking. No, there there are purposes and plans in play here. Exactly what they are, we still will ha- you know have to work at, at at figuring out. We're we're still trying to figure out the 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 questions of of the agent itself. Well, it's become clear. Uh, I would say so. Uh, that the agent it's, uh, is is a product of enhanced function, gain-of-function research, that it is designed in a lab, that it was leaked from a lab. That's now becoming pretty much mainstream opinion, even in the mainstream media. Um, so, again, is it just accident? Well, maybe. But then you ask the hard questions, why are they doing this kind of research? You get back to the questions of international competition and the whole attitude of the um, of the governments, uh, or at least of I don't know the governments, but but of the of the the military industrial complexes in these different countries to um, not to fall behind. So here at McGill, we. Again, I'm writing about this, and you can read it in a more coherent fashion when I'm done. But, you know, here at McGill, infamously, during the heyday of Alan Dulles at the CIA, we performed up the hill from where I work at the Allen Institute under its first director, Donald Cameron, Horrific experiments on people using massive electroshock therapy, sensory deprivation, LSD, and a combination of all to try to do what? His theory, in which the CIA was very happy to invest and support as long as it took place in Canada, not in America. Well, they did some of it in America, but his theory was that you could, you could de-pattern the the mind and memory of a person and then and then selectively reconstruct it repattern it to alter behavior and so he was willing to experiment that mcgill turned a blind eye to it even though they knew it was going on eventually the cia destroyed most of the records around it these are all established facts this is i'm not i'm not just you know i i didn't i didn't discover them they 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 are you you can read about them for yourself very easily. So look, there. What what was the whole purpose of that? Well, Alan Dulles thought that the Russians were doing this kind of thing, and therefore we had to do it and do it better. It's the same kind of thinking we had during the war when we finally got tired of what the Germans and the Japanese were doing and said, okay. That's it for you. We're going to firebomb Dresden. We're going to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We can't afford to fall behind you in this kind of behavior. So we will do it 
And if possible, we'll do it first and we'll do it better. That kind of thinking is what led to horrific, illegal experiments performed in a major university with CIA money in Canada. That's the 60s, late 50s and early 60s. What do you suppose has changed in this world? Nothing. Do you think that people no longer do or think that way or do that kind of thing? Of course they do. If we think the, the Chinese Communist Party or any other entity, maybe very much smaller and very much less wealthy and very much less powerful, is attempting biological warfare against us, what are we going to do? We are going to learn to make and wage biological warfare. So how do you fit something like COVID in? Is it just an accident? They were playing around with some of this stuff, looking for defenses against it, whatever, and it leaked. And there was a big problem and they tried to cover it up. We know they tried to cover it up, right? We've got hard proof of that from Fauci and Collins and the rest. That is, they were trying to cover it up. So when you live in that kind of milieu, milieu, the the ordinary person cannot hope to see through all of that. It takes decades of people um, examining it and studying it carefully for the ordinary person to get the kind of results that they can rely on. I think it's very unnecessary for us as individuals to try to solve all those problems and sort out exactly whose agenda is prevailing on what matter and at what time. But that there are such agendas, a person is incredibly naive if they doubt that. There are such agendas. There's proof of such agendas. And that's another reason why I don't like this talk about conspiracy theory. Is it conspiracy theory to say that people have these kind of large-scale agendas and they carry them out? I can send you to passages where where, um, people from these agencies are describing things that will happen before they happen. Okay, that's not coincidence. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I've been going on too long. Yeah, so um, we, and we need to wrap this up, I know, for time's sake. I'm just thinking uh, what this all means for Christians and for the, for the church. I mean, you can't do the large-scale stuff, although other one has to. And I agree with you, obviously, that every historian is a conspiracy theorist because that's what a historian does. Like, you look at... <laughs> Right, you look at what what forces conspire to bring events about. Um, I I do think though that the church needs to be aware, um, or what the church can do, what the church could have done in this case too, is if you if you have a you know we have talked about ecclesiology. What about anthropology? What if you have a you know an imago dei anthropology, like a solid understanding of our humanity is rooted in incarnation, human dignity is rooted in the incarnation, in the Trinity, ultimately. Um, and these sort of things, and you have a firm sense of that, shouldn't you oppose every dehumanizing uh, tendency, even if you don't understand the whole context, but in every concrete case, I mean, shouldn't Christians be alert to not just larger, trendy things of social justice, which is another question I wanted to put to you, but about every concrete um, dehumanizing uh, event that's taking place. And in the case of COVID, there were plenty, and the church didn't react. Um, and didn't do its its due diligence. Um, 
one puzzle to me, Douglas, has been, uh, you know, Pope Francis, who is this social justice warrior, who apparently had no concern about what the lockdowns do to uh, the the poor people, and was more concerned of getting vaccines to them all rather than, you know, realizing what's going on. Like those kind of things, those kind of blindnesses, I just really have been shocking. But I, I just, my main point is, even if we don't understand. We do know there are such uh, shenanigans and and really um, kind of connections in play, and we've been naive to think not to, but also that the church should react, even if it can't grasp the whole picture, should react react to those dehumanizing concrete issues just on the basis of their of their anthropology and Christology, which they haven't done uh, during the COVID crisis. So just, Jens, to push in for people who are listening, could we say that one of the errors that we made, and let's just call it an error for now, is that with society as a whole, we became utterly fixated, ide fix, on quantity of life, a terror of a death that came sooner than it should, even for those who are in their 80s and 90s and all the like of that. But one of the indexes that we as Christians should look for is when we're... um, giving up on quality of life questions as well. So for example, one of the things that was harrowing to me was that we would allow people on their deathbed to die completely alone and separated from their families. Yeah. This was a quality of life issue. And I had a woman in my congregation say to me, I would rather die pastor than go through the isolation that I was forced to go through with the nurses dropping off the food at my door at a knock and running away for fear of their own lives. Wasn't allowed to see my family. Didn't see human faces at all because if she did see a human, it was covered by a mask. So I'm just trying to give some concrete handles for the church to say, look, we have to be attentive to quality of life as well as quantity. But ultimately the quantity thing is our hope is in the resurrection of the Lord. Yeah, surely, and I mean, you raised the question of technology. One of the one of the interesting um, phenomena phenomena in our culture right now is this technology thing, right? Where where precisely the quality of life, if you want to use those categories, is turned into quantity. I mean, we're turned into functional mechanisms. Um, I I personally think that the uh, the fascination with the mRNA vaccines is part of that picture. Mm. You know, it's something that's contrary to organic life. It's, it doesn't work. It uh, manipulates the immune system rather than trying to assist it, trying to rewrite it. And that kind of bizarre reworking of human anthropology is is really strong and it's being pushed. I mean, that's one of those agendas, I think, um, to go back to what Doug has said, that is really being pushed. How concertedly, uh, I don't know, but it's definitely the transhumanist um kind of agenda of that rewriting of human, of organic life in terms of functionalism. Isn't that kind of the lesson of Frankenstein? Yeah, if you want, yeah, of course. Well, let, let, let me just say this. The, the, if the first principle of medicine is do no harm, the first principle of Christian ethics is it's never licit to do evil that good may come. And I mean, the, the first principle of natural law is just pursue the good and avoid the evil. Yeah. But 
but when 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 you when you get a Christian insight developing into what it means to pursue the good and avoid the evil, you you add this principle that is never licit to do evil that good may come. There 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 is so much evil been done during this era to people like you were speaking of Ed and to and to the poor that Jens was referring to and to and to the uh, young people the, the small businessmen and 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 to the people and we all know some or are some who have suffered serious damage from these products who are also I never listen to do evil in the name of good it's never licit to do evil at all and i've got much less in the name of good so th- th- this is something that 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 again back to basics this is something that we need to be clear about and when we see people saying well look humanity can't survive against the power of our new artificial intelligence algorithms unless it gets with that program and so we will reprogram your immune system or we will reprogram medicine. There won't be any discretion left for doctors. There will just be algorithms that decide everything. It doesn't matter the field. I mean, this is where some of these people mm-hmm. think this is all going. Well, we, we, we've lost the human. We've lost, we've lost sight of what it means to be a human being. Like Peter, who looked away from Christ when he was trying to walk on the water and sunk in the waves. That's where we're at. We have looked away and we are sinking as a society and the church is not showing any signs of being the ark that it's meant to be that you know rises up on the waters or to be able to walk on the water. Churches need to take seriously the vocation to look to Christ and to be able, if necessary, to walk on water and not simply be drowned in the waves of this storm that we are facing as all of these, um, uh, frankly, demonic attempts to undermine our humanity and and the message of the gospel um, uh, rise up with the kind of force they have, even to saying, we must not meet. Or you can't meet with this person. Only with the people we tell you. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree, and I, I think that's for me uh, what you've just said. It's back to the basics, right? We unless the church grounds itself in those basics in an incarnational, christologically grounded human identity, and if we if we had that, if we lived out of that, if we if we're saturated in that, we would sense what is wrong with the things that are coming down, and we'd be able to articulate them. Right? I've, I'm, I've always been impressed by the statement uh, when, when resistance fighters in Nazi Germany, Christians, were asked, you know, how, why did your husband enter, go into the resistance? Like, what made him decide to enter the resistance movement? The answer was always, he didn't decide. Everything changed around him. So that the things, the world that he held dear and and believed to be true, mm. was no longer there, and he fought for it. He didn't want it, you know. But they realized this because they were saturated in those kind of uh, uh, values, ideals, or in terms of the Christians, their Christian beliefs. And I think, as you said, the church is no longer aware of these basics: ecclesiology, anthropology, what worship really is, what the, and, and so on. 
So maybe that's maybe that's the lesson. We need to get back to to that. I think we need to see this whole COVID fiasco as an all-out assault on the image of God. I mean, we we've seen how Satan tries to corrupt everything that God has done. And he's been doing that since the garden, you know, honestly, since the very beginning. And we've seen how he's tried to do it through feminism, you know, to try and create role reversals through gender confusion, through the LGBTQ agenda, through abortion, through euthanasia. These are all different modes of attack on the image of God. And if we look at every single aspect of public health policy in this pandemic, it is all an assault on the image of God. The dehumanization of the masks, the separation of people from one another through the social distancing and, and the restrictions of gathering and all of that. Um, this is this. And, and then, of course, with with these vaccines or so-called vaccines, which literally now have broken all records for the most harmful medical procedure ever in the history of man. Um, you know, with, I mean, there's no, the, and not only have they made people more vulnerable to COVID than if they hadn't been vaccinated. So in other words, it's done the exact opposite of what, what they were supposed to do. But they've also killed and injured and disabled more people than any other medical treatment in history. But not only that, they have created a multitude of chronic illnesses in people that, that, that will leave people dependent on the pharmaceutical industry for the rest of their days because of all the autoimmune problems and other, other issues that have been created by it. And then, of course, that's not even touching on what this does to us genetically, where, 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 where they add in a gene and delete others. Once you're genetically modifying the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is this this literally takes the uh, the assault on the image of God to a whole new level. Wow. And the fact that they have forced this upon people who didn't want it, but they were literally at threat of being impoverished, of losing their job, not being able to meet their mortgage payment, not being able to feed their families or not being able to visit their loved ones in hospital. The fact that they've withheld health care from people who would not do this is absolutely amazing. Yeah. But but I truly see every single aspect of this whole COVID fiasco as, as, as literally a, a broadside attempt to destroy the image of God in a multitude of ways. And th that's my spiritual perspective on, and, and the fact that every single nation across the globe, almost without exception, has followed the same self pass of self-destruction that have plunged them into unpayable debt that has ruined their economies and people's lives and businesses and just left a trail of carnage behind it with, with literally no evidence of benefit from any of the treatments or of the COVID measures. This is truly demonic. Our battle is, is not against flesh and blood. This is truly the, the, the fact that every nation has followed the same deception makes me absolutely certain that it's the deceiver of the nations mm. who is the driver behind this and this is this is evil as we have never i mean just more blatant evil than i think we've ever seen before 
Well, that is a powerful statement, and I think I'd love to conclude just by reminding us of one text and reading another as we're entering into this um, Christmas season. And and before I do that, maybe give everybody a last word. Yes, I, I just want to say as we end, two things. And the first is, if churches decide to follow the um, their true calling in this, they have to also get ready to suffer. That that just goes with that. It will not come easy, and we just have to accept that fact. We will suffer tremendously, and that is the price we have to pay for following God and fearing God and not fearing humans and uh, all of that. And the second thing I want to say is we talked about quality and quantity of life. We have absolutely no control over the the quantity of our life. The day of our birth and the day of our death has been predestined by God. We cannot do one thing to hasten it or to uh, postpone it. Uh, uh, Of course, this does not give us a license to test God and do stupid things, but that is the fact. We are not responsible for that. And therefore, let's concentrate on the quality of life that we are responsible for, for the kind of life that we live as disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen. Anybody else? Douglas? Well, pick up on something Charles just said um, and connected to something G.K. Chesterton said, and that is when he was predicting the rise of a health tyranny a hundred years ago um, as a result of the eugenics movement, which is an attempt of, you know, eugenics is, of course, an attempt to redesign the creature that's in the image of God. And uh, and we're we're a hundred years into that program, a little more than a hundred, actually. Um, and we're seeing the redesign reach new levels with this genetic therapy uh, sort of tinkering, but he said that 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 the 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 most obvious feature of this um, of this uh, movement, for all its talk about the good of humanity, was its mean spiritedness. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> just as the churches, by and large, and certainly not altogether, but by and large, um failed to recognize in their own fear the absence of faith. They have failed to recognize the thoroughly mean-spirited nature of what has been done in the name of the common good. And this twofold lack of discernment, discernment about the problem in us, that we are fearful, and discernment about the problem in those who are um, running this theater, directing this theater, that they are thoroughly mean-spirited. It doesn't mean they all are equally mean-spirited. It doesn't mean there's nobody out there who's deceived and just trying to do their job. Okay, there are lots of such people. But the meanness of it all, it's the willingness to hurt people, and to coordinate those harms, you know, across the West, never mind what's happened in China, 
is 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 staggering and yet so many christians in the west so used to being comfortable are not willing to see either in their own panic and fear over covid or in the meanness of what is being done to people in the name of covid which has become a false god is itself staggering repentance is not going to be a matter just of brushing up on doxology and theology and anthropology or even ethics <laughs> it's going to have to go to the roots it's going to have to go to the core it's going to have to be quality repentance and pastors and lay leaders and all of us uh, i don't fit into either of those categories um, <laughs> uh are are going to be need to be willing to do our part i'm reminded that the devil masquerades as an angel of light and so much that is going on and has been done has been done in the name of the common good and it's done great harm on all sorts of levels psalm 2 has come to mind as we have been talking where david says why do the nations rage and the rulers of this world and the peoples conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed one. But yet, Psalm 2 goes on to say that God has installed his son as his king, and he will rule from sea to sea. And I just want us to conclude by remembering the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11, because this is our hope, and no matter how bad things get, God has sent his solution. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Let's remember this Christmas that we look to the Christ who has come to redeem us and indeed to usher in a whole new world. We need not live in fear, except the fear of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Bless you, and we'll see you all again soon. Charles, once again, a special big thank you to you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a great privilege. I'm, I'm most grateful. Thank you. Thank you.